0: Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you today. Happy Thanksgiving, happy Advent, happy Christmas, happy New Year, all the rest. Glad to have you today. Started to chill out down there a little bit. That's put your coats on when you come to Amen. Now, stumble in the dark, guys. Turn to. Remember what book of the Bible we're studying? First Peter, chapter two. Turn there. We, we're going to look at just two verses today because these two uh, are really sort of the hinge verses in all of First Peter. Uh, some scholars would say this is really the core of everything Peter's trying to say. This certainly is a hinge verse in a certain way, going from what's been described about us to uh, what we ought to be. And you know in the scriptures often you find doctrinal statements first, that, that is, this is who you are, and then you find the commandments. This is what you're to be. In other words, you get the indicative first and then the imperative. When we studied Romans, we saw it was Romans 1 through 11, the indicative and then Romans 12 through 16, the imperative. When we study Ephesians, we find Ephesians 1 through 3 is the indicative. And Ephesians 4 through 6 is the imperative. And there's a certain sense, although both the commandments and the promises are, are fused in 1 Peter, that you do have a little bit of a turning point right here in verse 11. We're going to see that we get both the description of who we are and the commandment of what we're to be in a summary fashion. So let's look at it, First Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends... I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Okay, let's notice first of all that we must think aright. you got to think clearly if you're going to be a Christian. If you're going to walk with Jesus, you've got to use your noggin. He's constantly calling us to use our heads to think, to think in a particular way, and to think with the lights turned on, uh, to think biblically, to think in terms of the kingdom. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. And see how we're supposed to think here. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world. And uh, first of all, Know who we are. We're beloved by God. He says, "Dear friends." Now, uh, the NIV has translated this "dear friends," but it could be translated simply "beloved." It's the word from which we get the word "love." It's uh, agapetoi here. It's the ones who are loved, the beloved. And uh, the NIV is suggesting, of course, in our translation, that Peter's saying, "You're the ones I love. You're my dear friends." But it could just as easily be translated, and maybe even should. Uh, I'm beginning to think, be translated loved by God or just beloved. Uh, The the most literal translation would just be, uh, those first two words would just be beloved. uh, A word that uh, was more common some years ago in the church. But it's a wonderful word. You're loved. You're the beloved of God. And I believe actually that is what Peter is saying here. That the place you always have to start is with the love of God for you. That determines Your behavior. Really, in one sense, it's that simple. How much do you believe God loves you? Some of you have or have had a really close relationship with your father. Some of you not. But some of you have. And you really admire him. And the last thing you do in the world is to besmirch your father's reputation in any way. He gave you a gift of his last name, and the last thing you want to do is mess that one up. Because he loved you and because he gave himself to you and because you you just simply want to honor him. And that's the starting point of that relationship is that, you know, you're loved by him. Uh, That's certainly the way it is with God. He's given us his name. Uh, We're called Christians. If you follow Jesus, you're called a Christian, which means little Christ, Christianos, little Christ, little anointed one. You're just a little junior Jesus. But you've got his name. And the last thing you want to do is to ruin his reputation. It all really starts there. It's out of love. If we're motivated by fear or guilt or wanting to be good enough to be accepted, we're really thinking about ourselves. And the problem with moral perfectionism is that what people are really thinking about is not God. They're thinking about their own moral record. And they're trying to get their own moral record good enough. Let me get enough merit, enough credits, enough performance points to get me in heaven. And it's really focused upon yourself and your own performance. But notice that Peter challenges all of that says, beloved, let's start there. Know how much you're loved by God. If you look in John 15, I put here John 17, but let's look at John 15 and see how this works with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he says uh, that uh, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This is John 15, 18. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As, you, as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And if you back up, you'll find in John 15 that he speaks of us as his friends. He says in verse 9, as a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my, my father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit and so on. So he's saying, you are my friends. And we'll see as we discuss later on when you're his friends, that also gets you into trouble. But it's the primary motivation for everything you do. And I just have to ask you a question this morning. Do you really believe down deep in your heart that God cherishes you and loves you? That He really values you? Do you really feel it? You say, I'm not a very emotional person. Well, do you get emotional about your football team? Probably. get emotional about your golf game? Probably. Why don't you see if you can engage some of those emotions, some of those affections in that relationship with the Father because he's engaged his with you, if you know what I mean. So we are beloved by God. We are his friends. And uh, you see this also in 1 Peter four twelve. 12. Uh, he uses the same sort of language uh, when he says dear friends there. It's uh, same word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. So when you go through your sufferings, the first thing to remember is that God loves you. So we start there, beloved by God. But secondly, notice there were aliens and strangers in the world. And we saw from first, uh, from John chapter 15, if we're friends with Jesus, we are going to be aliens in the world. At this point, turn to First John. This would be page 2036. Uh, turn to First John. Let's look at verse two, uh, 15 in chapter 2. First John 2.15. And John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when he's speaking about the world, obviously he's speaking about mammon. He's speaking about the world as a world order. He's not speaking about the world full of people because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's not what he's speaking about here. He's saying, do not love the world in terms of cherishing what it has and making idols out of its uh, material possessions. For everything in the world, verse 16, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And Jesus says you cannot love both the world and God. For you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You'll love the one and hate the other, he says. So you cannot love God and mammon. You cannot love God and the world. You have to make a decision. When you love God, that will make you an enemy of the world, an alien and a stranger. It'll separate you. If you love the world, the same thing's going to happen with God. It will separate you from him. You cannot have both. And and I just see men all the time trying to you know get the most out of get the best out of that life they can get. And they, they, they make idols out of the, th- the cars they drive, and the clothes they wear, and the jobs they have, and the prestige and honor they have. And they, they're also going to tag on being a nice Christian. And just kind of put a little book cover on the, on the thing dress it up. And what the Bible clearly says, you can't do that. You can see that if you're beloved by God, you're an alien and a stranger in this world. They go together. Your, your love for God and His love for, for you is what makes you an alien and a stranger. Now, in Genesis 23, this is said of Abraham. He's an alien and a stranger. And what is the context there? The context is he has no place to bury his wife. And he doesn't have a plot to bury her. He's an alien and a stranger. He doesn't own anything. And Peter is in some ways recalling that. He's saying, you're Abrahams. You've been called to a city. You've been called to a land of promise that you've not seen yet. And you're living among the pagans, but you're going to get up and go just like Abraham did. If you remember our study in Genesis, you get to the end of Genesis 11 and there is Abraham's genealogy. It's just full of moon God worshipers and sun God worshipers and all kinds of idolaters. And here God calls him right out of that world to go to the promised land. And Abram, you know, at a very old age, 75 years of age, not that old. I'm sorry, guys, some of you are that old, old in the ancient world, He gets up and he goes. Because he believed what he couldn't see. And what Peter is saying, you're Abrahams. What you can see is your bank account and your possessions and the things that that you're tempted to make God's out of. You can see those things. But an Abraham, a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, is one who gets up and leaves that as your primary purpose in life and goes for the city that God has prepared for you, and he has. A city beyond description. Revelation 21:22 gives it a good shot. But that's just a taste of what the real city is going to be like. And we're people who believe that. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you believe that. He's calling you to an eternal inheritance. And certainly we saw in 1 Peter 1 and 17 that we're called this over and over again. Peter is making this point over and over again. You're loved by God, which means you're called out. Of this world in a really clear sense. We appreciate all of God's gifts to us, but we do not make idols out of them. And we must forsake the things that would otherwise draw us away from God. Now you'll see that uh, this is characteristic of the entire Bible. Even in Psalm 39 12, we're told that we're aliens and strangers. And what's the point in that psalm? In that psalm is that we have a very short life. Life passes by very quickly. And the wise man understands this. Uh, If you know, uh, you know, it's it's like this deal with these subprime mortgages. We're all wondering where's the bottom? I'll tell you what the wise companies are doing. They're writing off their their losses right now. They're computing their losses and they're writing them off. And they're going to start living for the future. If you try to play the game that this is going to be alright and it's just going to go away and nobody will find out the longer you play that game, the longer the disaster is going to continue. So you count your losses, write them off, get on with the long term. And when you've got a losing proposition, the worst thing you can do is to hang on to what you got. And gentlemen, your body in this life is a losing proposition. Why don't you write it off? Declare your losses. And let's live for the long term. That's what a wise person does. And the long term is, you're you're this body's winding down. And look, I've been dealing with some of you guys for 13 years in this Bible study, and I can notice it already. You're winding down. Look at me. Somebody said, Wilson, would you stop losing weight? You're getting older every week. Every pound you lose, you're looking older and older. You, you can't win. If you're too fat and you lose weight, then you're going to look old. It, the body is not going to hang on. It's, it's not a, a winning proposition. So what do you better do? You better declare your losses. And they're severe in this case. It's called death. Reconcile yourself to death and get ready for the long term. And make your investments where they really need to be made. That's just simple wisdom. You know, in the financial world, why don't you know in the, in the spiritual realm? It's the same thing. I'm your preacher this morning. Listen to me. He's saying life is short. So let's live for eternal life. And make your decisions here in view of that. That's what Psalm 39.12 is saying. And Peter is recalling all this Old Testament language. Aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. Just get that in your head. You're an alien. You're a stranger. You have no citizenship here. You have a passport. But you have no citizenship here. You're passing through. If there's one thing that can be said about the Puritans who largely founded this country uh, back in the 17th century, is that they were, they were pilgrims. They, they, and they saw themselves as spiritual pilgrims. They saw themselves as passing through life. And look how effective they were. Look Look at... The American ethos. And they were only 15% of the population in New England. He was only 15% Christian. These Puritans were not the, 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 the dominant uh, demographic force. 15%. And look what sort of ethos was established in this country through their mentality of passing through this life and not grabbing for all the gusto you can get, not saying, I'm only going around once. No, I'm not going around at all. I'm going through. That was the mentality that built a, an institution and built a society, built a nation. i just say to you, I think this is a very effective way to live. Peter is saying it over again. Aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. And we need to figure out what that means in our lives. That's the first part of verse 11. Is that we must think aright. We're loved and cherished. We are not loved and cherished by this world. We are loved and cherished by God. So get your focus on the one who loves you. Remember who brought you to this dance. Remember who really loves you. Remember who's going to get you through it. And don't expect the world to, to be endearing to you. Don't expect them to do you a whole bunch of favors. Uh, now, secondly, let's look at the second half of verse 11 uh, where he, turning back to 1 Peter, to where he says, uh, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your souls. Look at this. We've got a fight to fight. There's a fight to be fought in this world. If the world doesn't really love us, if there's no real deep affection and commitment and covenant bonding between us and this world, then you can expect animosity. You can expect conflict. And you're going to get it if you're living wisely because the world is going to oppose your heavenly-mindedness and your love for God. So you're going to have to fight the fight. But followers of Jesus are warriors. They're not wince. They're warriors. So put the armor on. Get ready to fight. Well, who's the enemy? Well, first of all, the enemy is inside you. Now, we have several enemies. The world is our enemy. We've already seen that. We know the devil is our enemy. We'll deal with him later. But here, the Apostle Peter is particularly dealing with the enemy that is inside of you. You say, inside of me? You know, inside of me? You've got a fifth column. You've got an internal traitor. Yeah, kind of. He says, abstain from sinful desires. And this literally would be translated, the desires of the flesh. And this is what John says that we just read a moment ago. The, the, the three things. The lust of the flesh, literally. The lust of the eyes. Uh, and um, what did I leave out? The pride of life. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here it's the lust of the flesh. It's the desires of the flesh. This is an enemy to you. Now it used to be when you weren't a Christian, and some of you here. Oh, perhaps have not given your lives to Christ yet. Let me tell you something about your flesh. Your flesh is basically controlling your life. Your flesh is trying to grab for all the gusto. That's what flesh does. That's what a human flesh does. Now, when we say flesh, we don't just really mean this, although it's kind of a, this is kind of a sacrament of what I'm talking about. Your external flesh is kind of a symbol of what I'm talking about. What Paul means and what Peter means when they talk about flesh is the general orientation of your life. And since the fall in the Garden of Eden... That general orientation has turned selfish. Rather than serving God, we tend to serve ourselves. And it's very destructive. And you can see how destructive in the Garden of Eden. Adam takes an apple from Eve, and the apple looks good. It looks good. And in, in, in a real sense, it is good. God made it. But it's not good to eat it because God said, don't eat it. It's not like looking at a woman who's not your wife. And you can say, she's beautiful. Fine. God made her. She's she's good. She's beautiful. But then when you desire to have sexual relations with her, now you're lusting after something that doesn't belong to you. And that's bad. So a good thing becomes an evil thing when you desire it for a selfish purpose. And it's destructive. It's destructive for you and for that woman. It's amazing how destructive sin is. We'll see in just a moment. But it's... It's what we desire out of this world. Now, since the fall of Adam and Eve, the things we desire are often self destructive. Before Adam and Eve fell and took of the apple of the knowledge of, or the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the things they desired were good for them. And when we get to heaven, the things we desire, everything we want, is good for us. So you can have whatever you want, all of your lusts will be completely satisfied because you will be lusting after things that are glorifying to God and good for yourself. That's going to be someday, huh? But now, not so. Our basic orientation before we meet Jesus Christ is one of fallenness. We desire things that God did not intend for us to have. He's commanded us not to take them. We want to take them anyway. We take them to our own destruction and sometimes the destruction of people around us. That's the flesh. Now, what happens when you give your life to Jesus Christ? We're told that you become a new man. The old man is put to death. He's out of here. So your control center, your headquarters, is completely changed. There's a change out. So the old man goes out. The new man comes in. You say, oh, good, problem solved. I shouldn't have any problems with sexual lust anymore or greed or pride because I've got a new man now. No, here's what Paul says in Romans 7. You have, he says, in the members of your body. It's kind of like it's in your extremities now. It's not in headquarters. It's not controlling your heart. It's in your extremities. He says, like in the members of your body, you have what we call indwelling sin or residual sin. It's called the flesh. And so you're still fighting a battle. It's in retreat. He doesn't have headquarters. He hasn't raised up the flag. You've, still, you've got, you know, the Jesus flag raised up and you're in charge of headquarters. But you've got all these skirmishes all over the place and it's life or death. It's a battle. And these skirmishes are serious. So this is the flesh, that we have an enemy inside of us. It, if, you're, if you've given your life to Christ, it's not in headquarters, but it's, it's around the perimeters, always. You can put it into retreat, but you're not going to kill it until you get home. And then Jesus Christ is going to kill it for you. And that's when we'll be completely sanctified and purged and made whole the way we were meant to be. So you have this enemy inside of us. It was interesting. I don't know if you've seen Time magazine this week. Any of you seen that? Uh, no? Um, yeah, a few of you. And uh, the question is, you know, good and evil. Where did it come from, or what do we do about good and evil? On the front cover. So this is interesting. You know, since you know, us Amen guys will be talking about this Thursday morning. So I'm. Sorting through it, you know, and they, they pretend to have the answer to this. It's all scientific. You know, we're finding out that our prefrontal cortex fires off and this, that, and the other way. And it's all, you know, neurological. And the, the question that's being posed in Time Magazine is, you know, uh, you can study kids and find out that there's a fairly common moral code. And, of course, they don't say why, you know, that we were created with a conscience. It's all It's all um, biological. You know our brains are, are wired. They say in such a way that we all have a moral code. But they say the problem is we all seem to have common moral uh, uh, rules, but we don't keep them. What's the problem? And they go through a highfalutin uh, neurological explanation that makes that does not answer the question. It does not answer the question. But the, the, the question is how can we have Mohandas Gandhi? and Dr. Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa and also has Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot. How's that happen in common humanity? Well, Time Magazine does not get the answer. They, they pretend to. The front cover seems to suggest that science is going to answer it. It'll never answer it. It's a spiritual issue. You were made as body and spirit together, an integrated human being, and you're not going to get the answers if you... If you separate the body from the spirit, you must keep them together. In the Bible, you have them together. And here's the sad news. As a together man, body and spirit, you have flesh. And it is waging war against your soul. And you are you're a divided man. And only Jesus Christ can put it back together by taking over headquarters again and giving you the weapons to fight the battle until you get home and the battle will be completed. That's the, way, that's the answer in the Bible. And I'm afraid Time Magazine is going to continue to fish around, never get the answer, as long as they avoid the Bible. So the enemy is inside of you. Be sure and take it seriously. It's very powerful. I was talking to Wes Simmons, our college minister, who we have 39, we have uh, 250 kids on 39 college campuses in our church. And he's trying to visit as many of them as he can just to touch base with all of our college students. And, you know, he graduated from college himself, you know, I don't know, a little over a decade ago, or maybe maybe a decade ago, and Wes just came back and said, you know, the college campus has changed. I said, how? He said, sin is just pervasive throughout every aspect of campus life. He said, in the past ten years, it's just gone up another huge notch. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, i just go to the classroom. And uh, the professor finds out that I'm there and that I'm a pastor, and he just launches on an anti-Christian tirade. And asked me questions in public, which, of course, I was very glad he did. Gave me an opportunity to to witness. But just an animosity in so many of the classrooms. And he said, just the sexual behavior. Almost as soon as you step in onto the campus, it's just another world of sexual lust. It's just pervasive. And the drinking is completely out of control. I don't mean to be scaring all of us who have kids on college campuses. But I do mean to be enlightening us that... You know, you open, you, you give the nose of that camel access to your tent. Pretty soon that camel is going to be sleeping in your tent. And sin is very aggressive. It's very powerful and it's very destructive. And uh, you can see, B, the enemy is aggressive. It says here, he, the enemy wages war against your soul. You say, how can this be? This is my own self. It's my own flesh. Why would it be waging war against me? Gentlemen, some of you have cancer. Let me ask you, what is cancer? Cancer is your body waging war against your body. That's exactly what cancer is. And I'm telling you, this is cancer. And we all have it. And you need to take it more seriously than you do your physical cancer. Physical cancer can only kill you in this life. I'm sorry, I know that's a big deal, but uh, it's only in this life. This spiritual cancer can take you down forever unless you take it Seriously. You have a new headquarters? Don't give up the new headquarters. You have weapons to fight? Fight. Look in Ephesians 6. You'll find all kinds of weapons. You've got a sword called the Word of God. Use it. It's your only offensive weapon. You've got a breastplate. You've got a shield. You've got a helmet. You've got shoes. You've got a belt of truth. Use them and engage the battle. You know, some people talk about, we're going to have a prayer meeting now. We're going to engage in spiritual warfare. And they have certain prayer language they use that they're calling down all kinds of forces, and let me tell you something. you're not in spiritual warfare just when you go to that prayer meeting? You're in spiritual warfare sitting there at your table. You're in spiritual warfare when you walk out to your car. You're in spiritual warfare when you walk in the door of your business. You're in spiritual warfare when you go home. You're in spiritual warfare when you go to bed and start dreaming. You're in spiritual warfare all the time. What Paul is describing in Ephesians 6 is not some peculiar little moment of your week when you engage spiritual warfare. He's talking about your entire life. And you can't just breeze through life spiritually. It's not going to happen that way. You know, Some of us have relatives or some of you have been involved in the service. You know, my son's a Marine. He's a helicopter pilot. I'm telling you, these guys, they're dang serious about what they're doing. They train. They take care of all scenarios. They plan. They criticize each other's strategic battle plans they're constantly at each other trying to perfect what they're doing and they they learn to shoot pistols and rifles even if they're marine uh, even if they're helicopter pilots I and mean, they're ready to take on the enemy anytime any place under any circumstances and what they're doing is not as serious as what we're doing and peter is saying look dear friends loved of god you're aliens and strangers in this world you're aliens to the world let me tell you something else You're alien to your own self. You've got flesh that's trying to bring you down. And one day you're going to conquer it completely. You'll be done with it. But for now, you have a battle in your hands. So take it seriously. Get that Bible out and figure out how you can do warfare on your own flesh. It's the place to start is your own flesh. And then we'll learn how to deal with the devil. We'll learn how to deal with the world. But start by learning how to deal with yourself. And realize you have a war in your hands. And it's not easy. And I'm sorry. I wish it were easy. I wish people in Iraq weren't being killed. I wish over 3,800 men hadn't been killed over there. I wish a lot of things. I wish there weren't Al-Qaeda. But there is. And I wish you didn't have flesh to deal with. But you do. So if you've got it, if you've got this disease, then let's fight it. And that's what Peter is saying. Don't think you can follow Jesus with a lackadaisical attitude. Don't think that you're really going to follow Him and make this one of five or six priorities in your life. You're not. You are not going to follow Him if you make this one of five or six priorities in your life. Here's the only way you're going to possibly follow Him if this is number one with no rival in your life. And that is to follow Him and to get rid of everything in your life that's not following him. And to discipline yourself. This is serious business. That's what Peter is saying. We are warriors. So fight the fight. The enemy is inside. The enemy is aggressive. Now let's turn to verse 12. And see that he's saying we got to shine the light. Got to think all right. Got to fight the fight. Got to shine the light. We are not only at warfare with ourselves, but we have a mission in this world. And that is to make Jesus known by shining the light. Live such good lives among the pagans. This word good is also translated beautiful, attractive. So what he's talking about is the way your life is lived before the world. So on one hand, the world is opposing you, but you're doing something good for the world in return. The world is trying to suck you in to its self-destruction and darkness and misery. And you're trying to allure the world or the people in the world into the life of Jesus Christ. How are you going to do that? You're going to live a life. Now, gentlemen, obviously, I'm a preacher, so I believe in preaching. I'm a teacher. I believe in teaching. Some of you are teachers. We believe in communicating the truth, don't we? And if you're in business... Uh, you're a teacher. If you're a good businessman, if you're a good executive, good manager, you're teaching all the time. Certainly, we believe in teaching. But you know as well as I do the most important way in which you communicate the core values of your life or your business or of your religion is the way you live it. That's what everybody notices. It's the way you live. We all say that. That's the loudest sermon you preach, is the one without words. That's no excuse for having no words. Because if you have no words, you're not interpreting your life correctly. Words interpret why you do what you do. The gospel that I preach ought to interpret why I live the way I live. But I need to live a way that would cause anybody else who's looking on, who's not a Christian, to say, you know, that's a different way to live. That's interesting. And they might even say, no, that that seems to be an attractive way to live. That's exactly what Peter is saying you should do. You've got to live your life so that it is an example to other people. Before you ever start talking to someone about Jesus Christ, you've got to ask yourself this question. If they come to Jesus Christ, can I say to them, just, just copy me? You feel comfortable with that? So say, well, I'd never say that. Wouldn't that be prideful? I'd never say that, because after all, I'm not perfect. How could I tell them to copy me? Do you realize Paul said it seven times in his letters? Imitate me, imitate me, imitate me. Do as I do. He says it over and over again. He wasn't perfect. He was a sinner too. But he was genuinely, repentantly following Jesus Christ. And that's the reason he could say on one occasion, imitate me as I imitate Christ. All I can do is seek to imitate Christ. But I'm to do it in such a way and closely enough that if you'll just follow me and do what I do, you're going to meet him because I'm right behind him. You're going to get to know him. If you get to know me, you're going to get to know him. Gentlemen, this is the way you live your life. And I want to say to you, the clearest way to communicate Christ is simply to live a genuine Christian life. Fighting the warfare. Subduing the flesh. Vivifying the good things of Christ that He puts in you by His Spirit. And then, being ready, able, and willing to interpret your life to anyone who wants to know. For example, if you take your whole life, you've got your financial life, your social life, your intellectual life, your emotional life, your recreational life, your family life, your religious life, whatever you want to call it. You've got all in there. All of it centers on Christ. Every piece of the pie focuses on Jesus Christ. And the key to every area of your life is clearly following Christ. Because whether it's your social life, your emotional life, your intellectual life, whatever it is, you have to subdue the flesh in every one of those areas. And you have to bring to life Christ in every one of those areas including your recreational life. So if anyone looks at any aspect of your life the only possible interpretation for how you're living your financial life, your social life, your family life, your intellectual life, the only possible comprehensive interpretation of that is Jesus Christ. There's a man who's taking Jesus Christ seriously. The only comprehensible explanation for every area of your life is Jesus Christ. Therefore, if I'm talking to a friend who's not a Christian, maybe some of you, and you've got a problem in your life, let's say it's in marriage. Well, I, my marriage is not perfect, but my trajectory in my marriage can only be explained by Jesus Christ. So if I start talking to you about marriage and you say, well, Wilson, how do you do it? I say, well, this is the way I do it. You say, why do you do it that way? Thank you for asking and there's how I witness to Jesus Christ. The reason I do it this way is because I learned it from Jesus. That's the only possible explanation. When you get down to any area of your life, if you'll think about it long enough, if you're living consistently with Jesus Christ, every area of your life is only explainable ultimately by Him. Your, communal, your community life, your civic life, And therefore, if you're living a genuine Christian life and you're willing and able to explain it, you will have a witness with the world. But you need to be able to explain every area of your life and how focusing on Jesus Christ has transformed every area of your life. And be ready to talk about it. There you have it. So you don't have to have just a four-point plan of how you can come to know Jesus. That's fine if you have one that you can communicate to someone. But isn't it better just to be able to communicate in every area of life what difference Jesus has made to you? That's what it means to live a beautiful life among the pagans. Because their lives are not integrated around Christ, their lives are self destructive, their their lives are dark. If you're outside of Christ this morning, I have to tell you that ultimately it's a dark life, it's going to darkness. And when you're honest about your life right now, you feel the darkness. You feel the hopelessness and the despair. And you should, because life is miserable. It, the existentialists had it. It's meaningless. You have to impose meaning. You have to pretend meaning without Christ. So let the light shine by having your life shine with new meaning and hope and direction and purpose and humility in every area and then be able to explain it. This is what it means to live a beautiful life. That's the reason I say to folks who want to be in full-time ministry and sometimes will say to me, I'm just not sure I want to live in the (laughs) fishbowl. And you do live with a fishbowl, don't you? If some of you are in full-time Christian ministry, there is a fishbowl there. People are looking at you. And you know what they're expecting. They're expecting you to live a life consistent with what you're talking about. Now I want to tell you, I find that very helpful. I realize that's not the highest motive. The highest motive is to live a life to glorify God because I love him. But if you're expecting it out of me and I'm trying to measure up to your expectations, that's that's not bad. You know, there's a a discipline in having your expectation on me. And I just want to say to those of you in full-time Christian ministry, turn the tables. Turn the tables. Don't let that be your enemy. Make it your friend in terms of your own personal development. Here's another way it's your friend. And this is true for every one of us. It's your friend because you cannot communicate Christ without a fishbowl. And some of you are going back to a workplace where everybody knows you're a believer. And you know that they're expecting believer's behavior out of you. And you know how embarrassed you've been when you've not done it. That's okay. We all fail. I know how embarrassed I am when I don't do it. But the expectations are there. And it's fair enough. Because if you're professing to be a follower of Jesus Christ, your life ought to be different. Fair enough. Take those expectations and let them help you in your own self-discipline and also realize the only way you are going to communicate successfully to anybody else about Jesus Christ is if there is a transparency, if you are in a fishbowl, if people can see what you do. You ought to be able to say to anybody in your workplace who's got marital problems, knows you're a Christian, comes up to you and says, Gosh, I've got these problems. I don't know if you can help me. You ought to be able to say to them, "Why don't you just come home and watch me with my wife? How'd that be? Just come, just get to know us. Let's go to dinner. Let's talk about it." They ought to be able simply to observe it. In other words, what I'm saying to you is, you cannot communicate Christ without a fishbowl. You cannot communicate Christ unless you pull the curtains back and there's a transparency. In other words, you cannot communicate your life or communicate Christ to those around you without an exemplary life. So it's not just that your own life is unwinding when you don't fight the battle. It's that you, you, you're completely losing any hope of shedding light on this world when you're not fighting the battle. So live such good lives among the pagans, number one, that unbelievers, although they'll falsely accuse you, unbelievers will falsely accuse you. They'll say ugly things about you. That, things like this. You sure are narrow-minded. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you think you're the only one who's going to have it. Mm-hmm. Pretty judgmental, aren't you? Oh, so you think you have the truth and everybody else is wrong. Okay. Oh, so uh, you have a moral standard that uh, that excludes other people. So they'll, they'll say ugly things. Well, they said ugly things in the first century. The, the Roman historian Tacitus said Christians were loathed because of their abominations. What were the abominations of the first century Christians? Well, they called them uh, insurrectionists because they undermined devotion to Caesar alone. That was an abomination. They were abominable because of what they called incest. They were loving the brothers and sisters. They were abominable because they were cannibals. They were eating the flesh and drinking the blood. And it was common that people would just scorn them, these primitive people. Uh, Suetonius, another uh, early author, Roman author, was was approving Nero's persecutions against the Christians, because he said they're a class of people animated by a novel and mischievous superstition. So they called the Christians superstitious. Ah, oh, you know it's always been that way. And Jesus predicted this, as we saw. So. Hey, look, if Peter is reminding us that we're aliens and strangers in the world, don't, don't get surprised when the world treats you like an alien and a stranger. Who is this strange alien person from another planet who doesn't really know anything about life? That's what you should expect. So when you're shining the light, don't expect everyone to say, Oh, man, thank you for turning on the light. It's so dark in here. Whew, I couldn't see a thing. Thank you so much. Where's that light switch? No, that's not what you're going to get. They will falsely accuse you. And don't let that throw you off track. And if you're not willing, if you're not willing to fight that battle, you're not going to make it. Because when you follow Jesus Christ, you're following one who is opposed by the world and you're going to get it. And when you look at the disciples, the twelve disciples, you know that all of them, except for John, died a martyr's death. So don't expect a whole lot different. But be Unbelievers will see your good deeds. They will see it. Others must be able to observe your life and they will observe it. You can't fake it and you mustn't try. But, gentlemen, if you're following Christ sincerely in ways that you don't, are not even aware of, others will see something distinctive about you. If someone does something evil against you and you return kindness, believe me, they notice the difference. They do. If someone is gossiping and tearing down another person and you refuse to be a part of it, not in a self-righteous, priggish way, but you just gently, subtly change the subject or find another group to talk with, believe me, they notice that your standards are different. When you go out of your way to show kindness to someone who otherwise would have been neglected, and there's nothing in it for you, it's not your boss or someone you're trying to curry favor with, believe me, they notice it. When you go out of your way to spend time with someone who's lonely, go visit somebody in the hospital, believe me, they notice it. So no matter how much is piled upon you in terms of opposition from the world, they will see your good deeds. And they must see them. You'll notice in chapter 3, that in verses 1 and 2, it's true even with wives. Peter gives wives this advice. When your husband is disobedient, when he's gone the way of the world, what do you do? Win him without a word. Everybody says, hey, man, I vote for that one. <laughs> but it works, doesn't it? And he says, he says here, by your chaste and reverent behavior, win him without a word. A woman who's married to you has a very powerful weapon. Two weapons, actually. A godly life and prayer. Let me tell you something. Jesus is her friend. <laughs> so you'd be in trouble if you're messing with her. When she lives a godly life, which confirms who she is, and you're seeing in her the very evidence of Jesus Christ, and she's talking to her Savior about you, you're probably going to change. That's what Peter is saying. So the power of a godly example is enormous. enormous. Don't get discouraged because everybody else is going the other way. Believe me, they're noticing. And notice especially what Peter says, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What is he talking about here? Well, if you look at the word visitation in the Old Testament, we don't have time this morning, but if we were to look at it, especially in Jeremiah, you'll find that the day of visitation is typically referred to as the day of judgment. So ultimately, gentlemen, you're living as a stranger and alien in this world. You're following Jesus Christ in a way that's contrary and that is dissonant with the way this world is going. And they're heaping upon you scorn and making life even more difficult for you. Peter is saying, they see your good deeds. And believe me, they will glorify God on the day He comes to judge. How will they glorify Him? They will, it will be inevitable. They cannot ignore His glory and His power, even under His judgment. They may curse Him, but they will glorify Him by being the objects of His justice. I know this is an awesome doctrine, but Peter is saying it's awesome, but it's true. So get your head straight. There is a judgment coming. All things can be made right. This life is short. Live it in light of eternity. Get the long-term in view. Be a wise man and manage the short term. Manage the short-term in view of the long-term. And His glory is going to be shed abroad in judgment and in grace. Now, the Bible also speaks of the day He visits as a day of His mercy and grace. And there will be some who will see your good deeds. And by observing Jesus Christ in you, they will actually be led to Christ. This has happened over and over again among people in this room. People that have observed your life, seen something beautiful in it, And it has led them to want to know about the Savior who's at headquarters in your heart. And they get to know Him. And they will glorify God on the day He visits us. They will glorify Him by praising Him. And without that kind of example in this life, we're not going to be leading people to be praising the Lord when He comes to visit. Without a Christian example, without living an exemplary life, our words are like, Clanging symbols. They are nothing without love, without righteousness, without social justice. Our words are empty and even less than nothing. Isn't it true in your closest relationships? When you promise to do a certain thing or hold up a certain verbal standard and there's no life behind it, it's just clanging symbols. So, gentlemen, this is what Peter is saying. He says in this pivotal verse in all the first epistle, Dear friends, beloved of God, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for these special verses in the Scriptures and ask that you would help us to live the kind of life that's being commended to us by the Apostle Peter. We're thankful that Peter in all of his failure and shortcomings found repentance and was able to live an apostolic life and to live a God-honoring life and to continue to fight the temptation to be a coward and the temptation to preen before other people and sincerely to give His life to You. We pray for ourselves and all of our weaknesses and all of our failures that You'll forgive us and enable us to rise up with hope in our hearts and to live the good life before a world that desperately needs to know of Jesus Christ. And may they see in our lives something arresting, something distinctive, something inviting and winsome and attractive that they may be interested in the one who has taken over the headquarters of our hearts. And may there be great glory for you on the day that you visit us in judgment and in grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. God bless you all.